This is Mike Montero. I'm Erica Hall. This is Larissa Berger. We're broadcasting from Mule Design Studio in beautiful North Beach, San Francisco. This is Voice of Design. Brian. Hi, Brian. Brian. Hi. Are you there? I'm here. Okay. You sound older. (laughs) Just grumpier. There it is. That's what I meant. (laughs) How are you guys? We're awesome. And we're here. This is Erica. You obviously know who Mike is. And then Larissa Berger. What does that mean? You obviously know who Mike is. I'm Larissa. Okay. If there's one of us on this call that's not me or Larissa, it's... Clearly, you. Uh, <laughs> welcome to our podcast about design. <laughs> so I'm other. Yeah, you're other. I'm the designated other. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> nice guys. It's nice to talk to you. It's been yeah. a while. Yeah, yeah. Let's see, this is the banter and whatever portion. Oh. Yeah, good. Good to talk to you too. It sounds like you've been doing some super interesting stuff. I'm super excited. Trying to. Yeah. So are we ready to start? What's up, Brian? Hey. How are you? I'm good. Um, I'm Mike, by the way. (laughs) It's nice to meet you, Mike. It's nice to meet you, Brian. (laughs) So, Brian, uh, we haven't talked to you in a in a while and that's erica by the way. (laughs) Oh my God. This is this is how it always goes. This is how it goes. Erica Thunder. I bring the Erica actually brings the I bring the thunder. Hello, and welcome to the Voice of Design. Mike is the people person of Mule. It's I true. I fucking am the people it's person. It's a little, little known fact. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, what are the hell are you doing in Detroit? I heard there's nothing in Detroit. Detroit has been decimated. There's no... What are you doing? Yeah, we had Aretha Franklin, and, and then she died, so there's nothing left here. Right. So, yeah. what the hell? Reporting from the wasteland, Brian Boyer. <laughs> No, I I moved here about two years ago, and Detroit for me is one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting city in the country right now, because it's one of the places that sort of has, has recognized that a lot of the core systems of everyday life need to be rethought. So, you know, you walk into a, a random room in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where I was living before, and the conversation is about what the cheese shop has on offer or what new bar is opened or, you know, those kinds of things, which are really lovely, um, but uh, have a shelf life to them. And in Detroit, the conversation, if you walk into a, a random room here in the city, is more about, hey, what, what should we do about our education system or the bus network or the foreclosure crisis or, you know, any of a number of other core issues. And Detroit has this amazing, vital community that's that's been here and has thrived despite all of the challenges, economic and otherwise, that the city's been through. And so for me, that feels like a really exciting uh, place to be as the city sort of recognizes the strength and, and power that it has, but also looks forward to the future and tries to be creative about how to make its way. So lay down a little history for our international viewers who might not be familiar with Detroit. 
how did Detroit get in a pos- in this position to begin with? Uh, Detroit's financial woes are a, a big ball of yarn that uh, I'm probably not qualified to really explain. But my high level understanding is that uh, basically the city, through a combination of kind of management troubles. Uh, and perhaps making promises that were bigger than it could keep in in terms of things like pensions and um, other commitments like that, ended up in a position five or six years ago where it was the largest American city to go bankrupt. And that was a a shock for the country as well as, as the city, obviously. And it's really been kind of struggling to uh, find its footing since then. That's the acute version of the history. But really, I think the challenges of Detroit are tied also to the main industry here, which is the automobile industry. And those are, you know, they stretch back to the oil crisis and before that to really the beginning of globalization in the 50s and 60s. So it's, you know, people have said at at some point that as the country or as Detroit goes, so goes the country. I'm still trying to make sense of exactly the ways in which those, those connections have been made. But you know, I, I think what's interesting here is it really feels like a post-industrial city in, in a true sense. And, and you see it, you know, yesterday I was uh, taking a class at a local college on metal casting and there were casual references to GM and Ford and the other companies that uh, have been or were the mainstays of the economy here for so long. And they're just, the, the industrial economy is so present in Detroit and at the same time, you have a lot of discussion about startups and technology and, and other things that really you know, look more like the future, perhaps, than the past. And so it's interesting to be in a place that has one foot in both of those worlds. I was particularly interested in talking to you because, you know, you've always been, I think, one of the more thoughtful pieces, thoughtful pieces, thoughtful people in design, like thinking about construing that very, very broadly that I know. And right now I I was really interested in talking to you because it feels like, well, it feels like America's kind of broken, but it feels like cities are broken and more popular than they have been in my lifetime. And you've been doing some, some thinking about that because we're, you know, we're here in, in San Francisco in our bunker and San Francisco feels, yeah, it feels like the worst kind of, laboratory. Like the reasons I was drawn to live in San Francisco were because it felt like a place where people were like, there's a constant set of social and economic and cultural experiments going on. And it's a beautiful place. And now it feels like we have, in theory, some of the brightest and most engaged minds in, you know, design and entrepreneurship. Like if you ask people, they'd say, oh yeah, people, there are people in San Francisco where there's a culture of uh, design and, and technology, thinking about things, and yet our own city is completely broken. The Silicon surrounding Silicon Valley area is is totally like nothing's working. But it feels like there's license for everybody to be running their weird little experiments. Yeah, when I hear somebody say that, you know, we're we're, we're placing all our future chips on tech, I think, uh, oh, you're fucked. <laughs> you're, you're you're going from bad to worse, there, buddy. Not all the chips. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I grew up in California and still have a fondness for it. But um, San Francisco, to me, it, it seems like it's it's gained a lot of experimentation in terms of 
the types of services and technologies that are in play in daily life there. But at the same time, what I miss now when I go back to San Francisco is the sense of experimentation from a cultural perspective. It's it's become a, a monoculture in a lot of ways, or at least the there's now a predominant culture in the way that, I don't know, in, in the past was maybe perhaps it existed, but it was a bit more diffuse or it was, it was kind of less dominant than the tech culture is now in the city. But that question of, uh, for me, it's a kind of a question of balance. How do you find the right amount of experimentation without offloading the risks unfairly to uh, individuals or particularly people who are in disadvantaged positions? Have you seen um, from your time so far how that's being done in Detroit? Uh, you know, I think the strength of the community, the grassroots level here in Detroit is one of the things that, that is a benefit to the city as it tries to, I don't know, push back or at least make sure that development that happens here is, is done so in a way that is, um, as equitable as can be. So, you know, the, there was a period where during the bankruptcy and afterwards that there was just no development happening. And in the past few years, that's really started to change. So now we have downtown, what will be the tallest building in Michigan is under construction. And there's another large construction project happening nearby and a number of other things around town. So, you know, recently Detroit passed a community uh, benefits ordinance, which basically requires developers who operate at a certain scale to engage with the community and to um, have some kind of commitment to, well, one, to listen to the people whose lives they're going to impact and, and two, to respond to the questions or the needs that those people bring up. And, you know, that's something, for instance, that you have in, in San Francisco as well in a number of other cities. And that process on its face is beneficial to the community, but can be captured in a manner that then is used to prevent mm -hmm. development right. full stop, right? Which then leads to the housing crisis or leads to issues like the housing crisis that you have in Northern California. So it's... I. I feel like when we talk about some of the challenges that, you know, Erica, you mentioned around, on the one hand, urban life or cities are more popular than they've been in our lifetime and at the same time feel more challenged perhaps than they have been in a long time as well, that that's really about a declining ability to compromise more than anything else. And at the core of city life is a question of kind of navigating compromise. And that's something that for a long time has been a motivating force to draw people into cities and the economic activity that happens there and the social and cultural activity that happens there. But all of that comes with certain trade-offs. And, you know, it's feeling now when you go particularly to coastal enclaves uh, of wealth like San Francisco or, or New York or you know, LA or, or others, that the kind of bubble that's created around pockets of wealth allows people to entertain an idea that they don't have to compromise, that they can have whatever that they want. And I, I think that, that it's not an accident that's happening now when technology and a particular mode of venture-backed or venture-fueled technology has become predominant, because I think that's kind of inherent also in the idea of the way that you approach those companies is it's all about the perspective of that one company and the regulations be damned and competitors be damned and bystanders be mm -hmm. damned. Yeah, there's a, a real 
bystanders be be damned kind of attitude. So, Brian, when you're talking about compromise, what parties are compromising here? Well, for instance, when you move into the city, uh, you have less private space than you do when you live in the suburbs or out in the middle of nowhere. And presumably you do that because you appreciate the benefits that you get from that proximity to other people. It's those benefits surpass the privacy that you would have otherwise. I got you. Okay. I mean, you know, at a simple level, so we could look at it in a number of other areas as well, but I I think that's one of the basics. So like when we talk about, for instance, autonomous vehicles, uh, if you speak with people who are in cities right now, city administrations, a lot of them, you know, from a kind of transit perspective are really excited about the idea of autonomous vehicles contributing to public transit networks. And there's an assumption there that people will share those AVs in the same way that we share buses or trains. But what we've seen already with the popularity of Uber Pool and Lyft Line and similar services compared to their normal kind of private uh, single party alternatives is that that's a, a hard leap to make. And so people who, I mean, this is a gross generalization, but people who have the ability to opt out of the compromise of personal space uh, seem to be inclined to do so right now. Hmm. Yeah. Like your car provides a lot of personal space and yeah. Or, or even a private taxi does, you know, similarly, if, if we look at the use of, you know, libraries, for instance, there's been, of course, a bunch of noise about Amazon and other services kind of killing the library, but it couldn't be further from mm-hmm. the truth. If you look at particularly branch libraries in a city like New York, they're utilized very intensely. A few years ago, when we were working on a project for the branch library system in New York City, usage stats for the libraries as as a network surpassed basically all of the stadiums in the city. Oh, wow. So hugely, hugely utilized, but utilized increasingly by people who don't have other Mm -hmm. options, right? So the rich are kind of opting out of those systems that previously were uh, designed for all. And, you know, the the challenge then is that the richness of a city comes through Mm -hmm. mixing, right? It comes through people affirming that spending time with people who are different than themselves actually contributes to their livelihood, their well-being, and to the other's livelihood and well-being at the same time. And so for me, that's, I guess, I guess to be really simplistic about it, it's disappointing that that's on the decline. And so the work that we've been doing around what we call civic futures has been a way to try to puzzle through how do we address that? What do we do about it with the skills and, and abilities that we have as a small design mm-hmm. studio? Yeah. So let's, uh, yeah, let's talk about your, your work because you've had a pretty interesting career. And so a few years ago, you actually worked for the government of Finland in a design capacity, right? Correct. So I started architecture school on September 11th, 2001, and I ended architecture school in 2008, just before the financial crisis. Wow. So I, uh, my career has never really been Those might have uh, been signs. forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's how it feels increasingly. So uh, the the work that I ended up doing after grad school was was working for the Finnish Innovation Fund in Helsinki. And I was one of the founding members of something called Helsinki Design Lab, uh, which was basically a public sector or public benefit innovation lab 
inside the fund. And the fund is an organization that reports to parliament, but has its own endowment. So it's kind of like a foundation with a lot of political access in a, in a U.S. context. The work there was really what can design do to improve public policy and public services and public life. And it was an incredibly broad mandate. But uh, when we started that work, the words design and government were not really used in the same sentence. So you had here in the U.S. a little bit of steam building up around Code for America at the time, but they didn't have the kind of design focus that they seem to have these days. And in Europe, you had a growing momentum around a notion of service design, but it was still kind of on the fringes of government and not really operating on maybe some of the the core questions. So it was, for instance, more about improving a form to apply for some kind of benefit than about thinking how we might reimagine those benefits from a first principles perspective. So we had a really special opportunity there to work with partners in both Helsinki City and, and national level and ran Helsinki Design Lab for about five years after which point I came back to the States and brought some of that work into my practice at Dash Marshall with my co-founders, Amy and Richie. Yeah. And that, like the work that the Helsinki Design Lab was doing was just really cool in terms of, well, just discussing the idea of, of design being a government priority and putting that out there. But also there were just so many um, ideas and materials that were of like real practical value in terms of, you know, like research handbooks and, uh, and just uh, yeah, I'm, now, I, now I'm totally blanking on the other the other cool books we have around the studio that you would <laughs> give us that are neat. It seems like all of those materials were designed for people to actually understand what was going on there. And I'm not. Uh, you talked about Code for America, and I feel like in, in, so often when uh, we hear about design and government interaction or um, technology and government interaction in the U.S. The emphasis is on the thing, the tools, the, the what's going to be built or the service that's going to be replaced. and Or well, just like an interface to government. Right. Or, and there's a lot of de-emphasis on, on the people and how they need to change how they work. Um, and that seemed pretty core um, to the materials that you produced at Helsinki Design Lab. So how did you keep that as the focus without having to kind of hedge with stuff, which feels like what we do a lot of the time, we being the U.S. design and technology culture? Well, I think one important distinction is that there was never an assumption of technology with the Helsinki Design Lab work. So you know, I personally, before going into design and architecture, worked in the tech world, and that's how I know Mike and Erica from ages ago. Um, and so it it was kind of present in a latent sense, but we didn't have to kind of crawl out of a technology hole to get to people because we just started with people. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess at a high level, the mandate was, you know, again, how do you how do you improve the way that the government works and its ability to keep the promises that it makes to its citizens? So 
you know, those promises are a little bit different in Finland than they are in the U.S., but it's basically about ensuring the highest level of health, wealth, and happiness for the broadest number of people. And if you look at if you look at the way people interact with public services or the way that the public sector interacts with uh, markets or or unions or other players like that, you know, you can kind of see like, hey, there's some opportunity for improvement here. And the question then becomes, what are you going to do about it? And our hypothesis was that the contributions, some of the contributions of the design uh, perspective in terms of really caring about and understanding what the sort of North Star of a project is and really clarifying what you're driving towards and then using that as the organizing principle for all of your efforts doing so with an understanding of uh, how people actually work and not just how we expect them to work or how we wish they might work or live and doing so with a, a certain kind of flexibility that those, you know, those are demands or let's say requests of government that sound really nice. And you hear them in the U S now in the same way that we heard them in Finland where You know, we want government to be more responsive. We want government to be more agile. We want government to be better. But from my perspective, it's a pretty shitty thing to do to make all of those demands without also admitting that you might need new tools <laughs> mm -hmm. inside government. And so the work that we were doing with Helsinki Design Lab was trying to take this tool set that, that we knew well as architects and designers who, who started the lab and to try to adapt it to work in the context of government decision-making at a, at a strategic level. So again, not just rethinking, you know, kind of polishing forms or polishing those, those touch points, but really thinking about how those roll up into services, how those systems or how those services play into systems and ultimately how those systems get formed by public debate. And so the work that we were doing was, you know, I think of it as kind of twofold. On the one hand, we were trying to make manifest or make apparent to our colleagues in government that there were other tools that they could use, i.e. a design approach to their challenges. And then at the same time to make a kind of the inverse of that pitch to the design community. Because when we started that work in 2008 and 2009, again, design and government were not words that were used in the same sentence very often. And if they were, it was usually with a sense of derision And, and we recognize, you know, just from a, a longevity standpoint, like if we want to make this a real thing, we're going to have to make it seem as interesting and as attractive as designing an app to get, you know, pizza in 15 minutes or designing a, a really awesome building or a really awesome chair or whatever it is. And so the work that we put into the documentation that, that you spoke about was one way of saying like, here's what this work looks like. This is what you can expect on a daily basis if you're motivated by this call to public purpose. And here's how you can take what you know and the uh, expertise that you have as a designer, the experience that you have as a designer, and how you can apply it in a different context. And so we're just trying to build that bridge there so that hopefully a few people would walk over it and we wouldn't be so lonely. <laughs> Yeah. So how would you characterize the tool set that people in government were working with absent design? Well, you know, I, I think the, the one constant that I observed in Finland and I've seen the same with my work with cities here in the U.S. and, and also through research uh, all over the world, which was one of the luxuries of, of the work previously, 
is that people who are in the public sector by and large are there because they're drawn to the purpose of it, right? So there's often, there's like a cross-cultural meme of the forlorn bureaucrat who hates their job. But deep inside the core of that person somewhere is almost always a spark. And that spark is why they went into public service in the first place. And yet the democratic systems that we've built to ensure transparency and fairness uh, across the board now somehow seem to prevent us from approaching problems in the way that we see as successful in the public sector and elsewhere. So for instance, you know, the really laborious procurement process that you have to go through inside the public sector. It might be fun to imagine that that was invented just to piss off people. Because <laughs> it's <laughs> horrible. It, it's really, really bad. It's terrible, right? But it probably, my, my guess is that it probably was not invented just to make lives miserable. Uh, it was probably invented to make sure that people inside government were not giving jobs unfairly to their friends or, or their colleagues and getting kickbacks and things like that. So, but it's, you know, again, I think it's a question of balance. So if we look at like the onerous steps that a public procurement process lays down, like that makes sense if you're doing something that you've done a thousand times before, or even a few times before. So if you're buying staples, yeah, you kind of know what staples are and you know how they work and you know what a good staple is and what a bad staple is. So you can describe a process that you need to go through to buy those staples and you can just keep using that process over and over again. But when you get to the point where you're doing something that you've never done before, then suddenly that process becomes an impediment. And it then sort of puts you into a sort of like a spiral of Kafka scenarios where you're trying to describe or escape this process that was never designed to do what you're asking it to do in the first place. So, you know, even simple things like if you want to hire design services inside a government, uh, it's different now. People are kind of more and more open, it seems, to bringing in, for instance, human-centered design teams to help define a brief, help understand what the needs are. But if you go back a few years, design was defined as the people who make things pretty or, you know, frankly, don't even make them pretty, but try to at least. <laughs> You don't so, have to go back a few years. You can just, you know, go yeah. across a few blocks, even here or in New York. And I think you'd still find that. Yeah, probably, probably. But, you know, New York City is a good example because New York City is either about to or has recently completed a uh, pre-qualification process for all sorts of human-centered design practices. And, you know, I think that's, that's important because when a, a big actor like New York starts to validate those other approaches, then other people will follow. So what I would imagine we see is smaller cities that are looking at what New York's doing and start saying, okay, they did mm -hmm. it so we can do it. But the challenge is still there, right? Somebody still had to go through a whole rigmarole to say, hey, we should do this thing that we've never done before because we think the benefits are going to be positive. And, and so innovation inside the public sector context it's just, it's much more constrained than it is in a private sector context because everybody's afraid of failing because when you fail in the public sector context, the stakes are much, much higher than they are when you, you know, you have your pizza delivery app and it doesn't work for somebody. So it's, I see this as one of the biggest design challenges of our time, if not the largest, which is to rewrite the institutions that we have so that they can confront the challenges of the 21st century 
including climate change and income inequality and you know all those other things that keep us up at night, but without losing that commitment to equity that is at their core. Yeah, because um, even when you sell design services in like sort of the best case private sector, you're still up against the two ideas of, of one, you're being hired to innovate and do something that has never been done before. Like that's the act of design. But on the other hand, every client and government is the most extreme case of this wants to know that you've done it before. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, so that's that's a good question. I mean, I guess my question to you is, how do you guys define design? Wait, that was supposed to be our question for you. <laughs> it's, well, fundamentally problem solving um, and within a, a set of constraints, I would say at the most broadly, like you have to have a problem and you have to have a constraints and and that's really it you know and it's getting from whatever the current state is to the the future state i don't know if you guys want to have a yeah yeah that that (laughs) (laughs) and a lot of arguing along the way see i think this is one of the difficulties right now as uh, designers and others are trying to make sense of a world where we don't have science we don't have facts we don't have truth anymore (laughs) Oh my is that, God, I am calling so much bullshit here, but continue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which means that we don't have Why are you accepting either. those? I'm not accepting. Okay. Because I, 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 I so think I a per- lot. I personally believe in truth. Because I think a science. lot of designers have just accepted those as, as the new way to be. And that scares the shit out of me. Well, I have a, I think I have a slightly different take on it, which is that, uh, which is that we live in an era where defining the problem is as much work or as important as, uh, as solving the problem. So, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about architecture and I, I find it a more, let's say a more present discourse or dialogue in the architecture community than in the, in the design community exclusive of, of architects is that, Every building is about finding the problem you want to solve. You know, you know that there's going to be a roof to keep the rain out and you got to provide a place for people to live or whatever it is they're going to do inside there. But that doesn't tell you how to make a building. That doesn't tell you what shape it should be or how it should be like. And so it's really about defining whether it's something in terms of the human geography, the human community around that building or in that building or the geographical context, like sun angles or something along those lines, or a discursive pursuit, like I'm designing this building so it communicates with the history of architecture because that's what's important to me and to no one else. Whatever it is, the onus is on you as the synthesizer of all of those different factors to find a way to put a problem on the table that then is worth solving. And I I think that one of the challenges that we have now is that there are so many different definitions of what the quote unquote problem might be in any given context that aligning around that understanding of the problem is actually a lot of the work that goes into the types of projects that that you guys are involved in or, or that we're involved in, even though they're quite different fields. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think that all of our projects go that way as well, where you have to kind of find the meat that will pull you through the whole thing because there are so many details to be distracted by and not that fulfilling those is not important, 
but you have to find the piece of it that is going to really make a difference in our case, like to the organization and like really change its position and align with the high level goals that we defined at the beginning. But when you're at the end of it, it's just really tough to not worry about in it's so much easier to talk about with a building, the the roof leaking or or all of these other issues when, okay, our goal was changing how people think about this organization in a fundamental way. And, and at least uh, where I've had the most difficulty recently is like keeping our partner organizations focused on, hey, this is the thing that we're here to solve. And I understand that everything all this stuff over to the side is extremely stressful, but we have limited time, energy, and resources to really get this big thing right. I think that's a challenge. That's a challenge in any kind of innovation work. And as much as I dislike the word innovation because it's kind of meaningless and annoying, uh, I think one of the, perhaps one of the failures of the design community is to not recognize that every single design project in the way that we're describing it here is an innovation project and yeah. that nobody's, nobody's ever done it before. Yeah. And so it, it's as much about creating that community of let's say like turning bystanders into a community of stakeholders so that people understand and agree on what needs to happen and that they can then see, they see that North star despite all the distractions that you're describing. The design community is is, is essentially a, a Whitman sampler of failures. They've failed. In, they're failing in so many different ways right now that you know you can bite into something and not know which particular f- flavor of failure you're going to get. Earlier, you mentioned how you have to how you have to define the problem before you can start designing a solution to that problem. And I think that one of the one of the failures of designers is not seeing that that. The, the first half of that sentence as an element of design in itself. Absolutely. The understanding of a problem, the digging into a problem, the figuring out what you're trying to solve is the beginning of the design process. It's not something that's impeding you from design. It's where you start. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also think that the kind of cloudiness ar- around that fact is something that stems from particularly in your part of the world, the closeness of design and engineering. So the Stanford slash IDEO slash tech community kind of lineage of design being problem solving really puts it, it puts the idea of a given problem on the table and really obscures the notion of the designer as somebody who at least half of the work is about finding that problem and and really not only finding, but defining the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's something, you know, that we've been, I I wrote about it in the Civic Futures essay on Medium, where I I think to some extent, I love the fact that human-centered design has become a de facto standard. And it seems to be, I I went and did a one-week workshop in Japan last year, and all of my students in the workshop knew the human-centered design process even though they were undergrad, or a lot of them were undergrads or kind of quite, quite green. And that was shocking to me because, uh, you know, I'm not that old. And when I was a student, it was still like, felt like a really new thing. And yet what we've given up is the ability to really interrogate the challenge. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I look at 
kind of the ability of human-centered design to, to translate a set of constraints, in Erica's words, into some design, quote-unquote, solution, that's really powerful. And it's great at delivering on things that are meaningful to individuals. But what I miss is the kind of discourse that we had in, in the 60s in the design community and also uh, broader cultural circles around rethinking how we want to be. And you know that is the core of defining a problem or defining an agenda is, is really understanding or debating how do you want to be? And particularly, how do you want to be with others? So somehow this challenge that we're trying to puzzle through with our civic futures work is how do you retain that ability to be relevant to individuals and to humans that is so present in a human-centered design uh, toolkit or process, set of tools, but at the same time maintain the level of ambition that we had in the 60s. And right now, when I look at what's happening in the design community, you know, I, I think it's it's easier to find ambition in, in other circles than it is in the design community oh, very often uh, these yeah, days. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the big differences between design in the 60s and design now is that designers forgot who they work for. Yes. You don't work for the person writing your check. That's right. The public. Yeah. The public is, is always the client. You, your job is to society at large, first and foremost, in helping to design a better society that makes, as you said earlier, and I believe very eloquently, the most amount of people happy. You said it better. Yeah. And if you look at how when Buckminster Fuller uh, articulated his life's work after you know his business crashed and burned, where he just sat there and said, okay, who am I? What do I have to offer? Okay, the rest of my life is going to be in service to humanity and everything else is details. And like that is is an epic level of of ambition and just an, an amazing framing. And meanwhile, designers today seem to have the framing of like, oh, how can I design an app that gets my pizza delivery sooner plus my weed? Im- im- imagine. <laughs> could, oh, can you do that together now? Uh, I'm sure it's okay. bundled. I mean, when I, I see designers and, you know, other service-oriented professionals basically being, you know, the same. I see doctors and designers doing, you know, having the same kind of, of effect in society. We're here to help people when they need us. And our job is to make sure that when we go into these companies, we're taking a look at, at what we're being asked to build and measure the effects of what we're being asked to build on society at large and mitigate bad effects whenever possible and push good effects whenever possible and, you know, throw acid on things when good effects aren't possible. Yeah. So that's the idea that any individual designer will have a personal mission or a personal kind of Hippocratic oath like a doctor does in addition to whatever their, whatever organization they're working on behalf of, like whoever's cutting the checks to them is one thing. And then the responsibility and role of designers is another, like you take that title and it comes with or that description or however you want to describe it. And it has certain uh, entailments. The reason I was interested in talking to Brian is because, Brian, you understand both design and architecture. Try to. Try to. Okay. So they don't let just anybody walk in off the street and design a building, correct? (laughs) (laughs) In theory. What does it actually take for you to call yourself an architect and get a job as an architect? Well, so this is a tricky one. 
because what you legally must do is graduate with a degree from an accredited program. Okay. And then uh, complete a certain number of internship hours that is equivalent to about three years. And then take a battery of licensure exams, which I have not done. So I cannot legally call myself an architect. Aha. Which is which is very tricky because here, you know, for instance, there are cases where people get uh, kind of slapped for calling themselves architects, even though they're not. And yet I know tons and tons of people who practice in the similar position to ourselves uh, and have no qualms about using the word architect, whereas we're very circumspect about it. We're very careful. So for instance, on the website for Dash Marshall, you'll, you'll see a description of what we do is more about helping people um, think through the possibilities of their relationship to space or to the built environment. So you have an architecture degree. Correct. But you are not an architect. I am not. I am an unlicensed architect is what you can call me. But there's a path to get there. There is a path to get there. Okay. I, I think it's a, an old fashioned path that that represents a kind of craftsman version of architecture and not really the expanded definition of architecture. So in the same way that you guys are, you know, maybe nominally a, a graphic design studio, but actually you're quite engaged in organizational transformation and higher order issues with your clients and your projects, we take a similar approach to architecture. So yes, I care about the detailing of windows in the same way that you guys care about whether the JavaScript works or not. But uh, at the end, that's not why we're doing the work. And frankly, that's not why somebody hires us. They hire us because of our ability to understand how those details are connected to the bigger picture and to manage that spectrum in both ways. Yeah. And uh, and I think alluding to what Larissa was talking about earlier, uh, a lot of times it, that can be a hard part of managing the dialogue with the client is if the anxiety is about a particular detail and your response might be, well, you know, yeah, 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 that's fine. That's not the hard part or that's not the um, the material part of the problem. That's like a detail. And if you don't sort of manage that dialogue correctly, then maybe there's a sense of like, oh, sure, you're you're going to design some sort of innovative solution conceptually, but ultimately like the doors won't open. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's that kind of anxiety or those human dynamics or something that exists in any interaction where one or more of the parties has a kind of magic tool set. So this is a case where the opacity or, or the kind of, um, you know, the, the fact that design is not really well understood by the general public is an impediment to our work. So, you know, people don't know that fixing some of those detail issues might be quite simple for you because for them, they're incredibly difficult or maybe even impossible to fix. Yeah. And so that, that anxiety becomes a blocker to focusing on other things because it's, it's so huge for them. But from your perspective, it's very small. You know, it's, and I think that's something that, you know, I certainly experienced in, in Finland earlier in my career where you walk into a room and if you use the word design, people are going to map a certain set of expectations onto you, regardless of what your actual skills are or, yeah. or why you're there. So, you know, my colleague Marco always tells this story about how he was in a hospital speaking with the, the chief administrator about 
redesigning the way that they deal with stroke holistically as a system. And that this uh, gentleman in the hospital wanted to show him the new kitchen that they had renovated because they knew that Marco was an architect. And I've, <laughs> I've had similar experiences inside government ministries in Finland. And, it, you know, I think there's um, I, the way that I came to terms with it is there's a certain amount of professional grace that you have to bring to those situations and doing so can help you move on. And, and then it's really about proving that you can that you understand somebody's world enough to be allowed to fiddle with the things that are deeply important to them as an individual or as an organization. And to do that in conjunction with, yes, taking care of those pragmatic details. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that's the, the type of maybe skill or, or just part of the practice that I, I certainly don't see enough discussion about or enough recognition of. And, and I think that uh, although certainly doctors and other professionals have their own version of that, you know, my partner's a lawyer and she certainly talks about issues in a similar vein or the kind of client or interpersonal issues in, in a similar vein. But I think designers are, the challenge that designers have is only increased by the opacity around the way that we work and kind of unique tool set or like the, the magic that we bring to the project. So I think that's a, such a good point. And to your earlier statement about bringing bystanders into the process as stakeholders, I think that the opacity of design and the anxiety that clients bring when certain details aren't finished and not knowing how to react to that is why so many bystanders, designers think they're doing themselves a, a service to keep those bystanders out of the process. So mm -hmm. if they can simplify the, the number of stakeholders, they don't have to explain what the role of design is for that project or for that space that they're exploring or higher goal they have, because it, it is actually a lot of interpersonal work to take on. But if you, if you can manage that effectively, I mean, I think that you see it in the work. You, you always can tell like, oh, this was made for people. Yeah, I, I think a far bigger problem than other people not understanding what designers do is designers not understanding what designers do. <laughs> that is certainly true for uh, some percentage of designers, yes. 90% maybe. <laughs> well, so let me, let me try to answer this question about what is design, because I, I know that it was something that um, you wanted to ask me and I made you guys answer it first. <laughs> Crafty. Uh-huh. Because the thing that I've been trying to puzzle through on my own is exactly that, Mike. Like, what the hell am I trying to do as a designer? And particularly as my practice has moved more into these sort of, well, civic questions, how do I do that? And what's the line between me as a person and me as a designer? Because, you know, we were having a, a conversation just a little bit ago about you know, designers having a Hippocratic oath or wanting to do good in the world. And I agree with that, but I also think there's a point at which it doesn't matter that I'm a designer. It just matters that I'm a neighbor Correct. or that I'm a citizen, right? Yeah. So I don't need to be a designer to go to the school that's in my neighborhood and to read books to kids. Absolutely. I can just do that as Brian and I should, and I don't, and I'm a terrible person for not doing that. An animal, but, really. Yeah. But, you know, as I've been trying to understand what it is that that designers do, and of course, in a self-serving way to, to define it in a manner that is relevant now. I mean, the thing that I've come to as, as most core between 
all forms of design is that we make singular decisions about a blended set of different values. And that sounds really jargony. So let me try to unpack it a little bit that if I'm an architect, I have to make decisions that I can calculate like the structural system of the building. We need to make sure that it's not going to fall down. Right. That is helpful. That's helpful. And then there are certain things that maybe we can't do number crunching, but we have ages and ages of precedent, right? So I have books that I can use to look up and figure out approximately how much space I need per person in an office building, for instance. And that gives me some sense of uh, what's going to make it fit for purpose. And then there's a third category of things that are ineffable and can never be quantified, like what makes a courtroom feel like a courtroom and not a grocery store Mm -hmm. or a church or something else. And so things that you can quantify, things that you absolutely can't quantify, and things that are merely codified or kind of rules of thumb, all of those have to be balanced and somehow merged into singular decisions, a building, a website, a media campaign, whatever it is that you're creating. And I think that actually the ability to essentially juggle apples and oranges and bananas or whatever you want to call it and to make singular decisions at the end and to have that bias towards action, towards actually doing things, not just talking about them, that that's the magic of design and that that's what we bring to the table. So a lot of uh, what you've been describing or what we've been describing in this conversation you know, if we went back 50 years, would not really be thought of as, as designerly, right? So like managing anxieties and expectations of people in a room is not inherent to design, but doing that with a bias towards action and helping people make decisions about things that they can quantify at the same time as things that they can't quantify, that that's actually the secret sauce or, or the mojo. And that that's particularly relevant, I would I would argue now in 2018, because we are finally moving away from an economy that evaluates everything from the perspective of money. So we're just at the very beginning of starting to understand environmental and social value in the calculations that we make about, for instance, policy decisions or business decisions. And as that becomes more and more prevalent, then I think, or I hope, or I'm optimistic that this uh, kind of dark art of design will also have a more of a role or more of a need, at least. Whether or not there are practitioners who can do it is another question to your point, Mike. But I think that's the opportunity. Yeah, I think I agree with everything you said and the eloquence in which you said it. My question back to you is why are you using words like magic and dark arts? Because <laughs> everything that you just described is a skill is a skill that I have learned and perfected over time. Yeah. And and which, you know, me calling myself as a, a designer and, and being okay getting hired as a designer is like a promise to you as my client that I can use these skills to replicate a good solution that I've replicated in the past. That mm, it's what it's you're, what you're paying for is, is, is my experienced skill. Mm, yeah, but it's not quite, it's not quite as repeated in the sense that every project is different. Everything 
has different goals and and we always have to kind of like comfort clients through yeah, that. No, I know that yeah. and we do that all the time and that to me is a design skill as well. You know, politically man- maneuvering through a room full of people figuring out what they need to hear and and what I need to say to them mm-hmm. to get to the outcome that we've all agreed on, that's a design skill. Yeah. I would describe that as the skill of that's a question of stewardship. But mm-hmm. I, I think that that absolutely, Mike, is a skill of a well-seasoned designer, but it's not exclusive to design. No, I'm absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with that. Brian, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that neither of us can dunk a basketball. Not unless it's a toddler hoop. Correct. I'm, I will totally throw down with you on a toddler hoop. So when I see somebody dunking a basketball, it feels like magic to me. Like, how can, how can you get your body to do that? Because I've, I cannot do that. And no matter how much I might practice doing that, I will never be able to, to do that. In the same way that somebody who's, you know, watching me do what I do and who's not trained at it and maybe not might, and doesn't have the same skills or aptitudes that might look like magic to them. Correct. But it's not. And, and also somebody who can, I mean, being tall in and of itself is not enough to dunk a basketball. There's- but I think the, the difference that I would put forward is if, I, if we watch somebody dunk a basketball and then we, we look at our own flabby bodies, I'll speak for myself. I look at my own flabby body. Poor, horrible excuses for human <laughs> bodies that we have. There, there you go. That I know, or at least I think I know the delta between myself and the alternate reality version of myself that can dunk a basketball. There's the kind of athleticism that's missing is clear. So whether or not I can actually imagine achieving that is a separate issue, but I, I can, if I allow myself to dream, picture of a much more athletic version of myself that can, can do that. Because I, I see the skill and I know what the skill is. And I, I think that the difference that I would offer is that I believe that most people, when they see somebody like yourself practicing design at the top of your game, they don't know what they're seeing. And that that is actually the challenge. All right. That makes sense. We still struggle to tell people what we're doing. And that's actually why often I don't use the word design anymore. Uh, when I'm working in a public sector context, because it's just too distracting. What do you say? Whatever comes to mind at the moment. <laughs> what? Yeah, whatever word works. Yeah, and I think that's I mean, a- you know, yeah, despite my misgivings about the phrase problem solving, sometimes we describe it as that. Sometimes mm-hmm. we describe it as um, just innovation services, just generic, just consulting, advisory. Why do you not like problem solving? I think that one of the challenges that we've inherited from the industrial era is an idea that there are certain people who sit in the room and define a problem, and then they pass it to other people who solve that problem, and then perhaps they pass it to other people who implement it. There's a production line. Yeah, that production line is you know at the core of an industrial delivery process, and it's at the core in a very simplistic fashion in how our, our political and our government system works. Yeah. And that all breaks down if you can't define the problem easily. And so the reason that I don't like problem solving is, is precisely as, as we were describing, that it assumes too readily that there's already a problem that everybody agrees with. Ah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Huh. I really like the way that you described 
design because one of the things like the work that we're trying to do to kind of shift the way people are thinking about talking and purchasing design is from hiring people to design artifacts to hiring people to make decisions, as you said, because even designers working today you know, at the like the forefront of wherever we are in terms of thinking are still defining themselves in terms of what artifacts they produce. Like even if you're like calling yourself a UX designer, there's like a series of artifacts and we're trying to shift the conversation to, well, actually what you're doing is making a series of decisions and whatever artifacts you produce should be whatever helps you make that decision. But the decision is the central part of the work. Yeah, that's actually exactly how we described it at Helsinki Design Lab, that we wanted to bring the same level of craft and care to decision-making that designers bring to artifacts. Fantastic. So I'm really interested in, in what you're doing now in, in terms of this civic futures work, because uh, as a person who feels like very at home in cities, loves cities, and am deploring the direction that cities have been going in terms of a monoculture and this dysfunction that feels like it's growing and this loss of like a vision for the future. I'm super excited to hear more about this, like how this practice came about and where you hope to take it. Yeah, I I think at its root, the civic futures work came out of a a similar set of misgivings or, you know, from a a similar heartburn as as what you described. I, I think to some extent, the civic futures is maybe it's a reflection also just of of my own career and and the kind of interest that I've accumulated a, along the way. So, you know, I, I think about it as operating at the intersection of institutions, technology, and the built environment. Because in my estimation, any version of the future that I want to live in involves some combination of those three being reimagined. And what we've been trying to do with the civic futures work is to say, you know, it's our job as people who care about the city, care about a shared life on a fragile planet to make manifest alternative futures that we would actually like to live in. And, you know, I, I, at one point, I guess maybe watched a few too many uh, Black Mirror episodes (laughs) and felt like there were too many visions of the future that were either flying car, sort of very, very distant, making huge assumptions about technology and unrealistic or quite plausible in the way that Black Mirror can be and yet absolutely dreadful. And so we were looking for, in conversations in the studio, sort of looking for that middle ground that is optimistic is, let's say, within arm's reach or maybe just a little bit beyond arm's reach instead of 50 years down the road and spanned from rethinking, you know, small, the smallest level of interactions up to the largest. And so in that sense, kind of walking across the entire spectrum that we were talking about earlier from uh, human-centered design up to a kind of 1960s-inspired systems or, or strategic design perspective. And I just felt like those have to be brought into one conversation instead of allowed to exist as separate ones. So, you know, in Helsinki, the work that we were doing was often more on that systems end of things. You know, it's a lot of conversations and, and working with people 
in conference rooms and just trying to kind of rewire stuff as as carefully as we could, but by working very much through an analytical framework, very much um, kind of inside the halls of power and quite distant from what the tangible or concrete outcomes of, of the shifts might look like. And so with Civic Futures, we've been trying to straddle the line a bit and say, you know, all of the work that we do starts with some deep thinking about how we might reimagine the way that uh, urban systems operate, who they might serve, why they might serve those people, how they might serve those people. And that we want to be very clear about the kind of um, systemic changes that we're imagining or, or perhaps provoking. But at the same time, we want to show that in terms of the human consequences. What does it look like and feel like on a day-to-day basis? And the reason that we're doing that is because I think that as much as we can talk about a rational, analytical justification for change, what we've seen from the tech community in particular in the past 20 years is that that can all be steamrolled or trampled by something in your hand right now. And so as much as I do not appreciate that approach, like when the bird scooters land in downtown Detroit and make the sidewalks difficult for people to pass, um, what I do appreciate is the tangibility of, of that approach. And so we're trying to find a way that's more respectful, but retains that tangibility. And so that's why our work is in film and other kind of tangible media, but the ideas that are, let's say, uh, embedded in that work are more systemic. Yeah, that's really, that's interesting. So we've been talking about the same thing in our work about we, we want to work at this systems level, but you have to provide something tangible or else it doesn't take, it just doesn't take. And so what is that tangible representation? So it's interesting you're working with film because, yeah, I feel, I feel like we've totally lost the idea of, of the future, right? As a system, like the only way we have of talking about the future is in terms of consumer technology. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, again, one of the things that I think the previous generations were very good at doing. They were good at imagining the future. And now we've somehow allowed that to be offloaded to mostly small tech companies and the occasional large tech behemoth. You know, I just, I think that's to our detriment as a society. So I, I look to the work of studios like Superflux in London that are doing really awesome work uh, around futuring and futures methods or, um, you know, other, other people who are kind of taking a futures approach and borrowing a little bit from that, but maintaining this craft that we have as designers of making stuff that's attractive and appealing and, and engaging more importantly, but, but kind of uh, almost weaponizing that skill or that craft, if I can use that phrase, so that you know, when we when we create things in the civic futures projects that are shiny, they're shiny to pull you into a conversation or to pull you into an imagining of what a different future might look like. They're not shiny for the sake of being shiny. They're not shiny for the sake of stealing the money that's in your wallet or Bitcoin. <laughs> what happens to people in the future who can't afford those shiny objects? Do they get no future? Well, I, I think it depends on how you're defining shiny, right? So one of the rules that we hold for ourselves in the civic futures work is that it's got to be more Star Wars than Star Trek <laughs> in that the Star Wars aesthetic is kind of beat up and 
crappy in a lot of ways. Whereas in Star Trek, everything just had the plastic peeled off it. It's totally new. So, you know, we, we talked a little bit about human-centered design's failings. And I think one of the challenges that I have with it and, and the reason why we're trying to now adapt some of those methods um, in this Civic Futures work is because often it's dependent upon the people that you have access to, right? And so if you only have access to people who look like yourself because you're at a company of people who look like yourself, then you're going to be screwed from the start. So we need to develop new ways to either engage in dialogue with people who come from very different walks of life and to understand what their distinct needs are, or we need to bring them into the process. And there's a lot of work collectively um, in other parts of the design world around participation and participatory design that I have some hesitations about. But I think fundamentally for us, the thing that we're concerned with on a slightly longer timeline is like all of that's great, but it still doesn't account for people who don't exist yet. And I think one of the failings that I see currently in the way that we collectively imagine technology is that we're too easily excited about it now and don't take enough time to imagine what happens when it becomes a success. Yeah. And that success will be foisted upon or inherited by people who haven't been born yet. So for instance, we were doing some work on autonomous vehicles uh, last year and working with a, a city that uh, had the um, had some delivery bots, these kind of like, uh, you know, luggage sized robots that pick up a burrito and deliver it to your house, right? With, with no human intervention in theory. And this city was really excited about having those robots on its streets because it was a, a signifier of innovation and economic activity. And the challenge that we put forward to them was what happens if this becomes successful? So having one of those robots going down the street every now and then is fine. But if it actually catches on, right? If you actually get that that mythical hockey stick of growth, (laughs) then suddenly your sidewalks are just as clogged as your streets. And you've eliminated one of the last places left for humanity in your city. So, you know, part of what we've been trying to do is, is I guess, hold ourselves to a, a slightly higher standard in terms of saying, like, how do we think about things that are attractive and beneficial today? How do we play those out over a longer time period? And how do we anticipate the kinds of challenges that might arise over that longer time period and then use that to rethink the solution from the first point? So it can get very cyclical, (laughs) as as you might imagine, based on my slightly messy explanation of it. But I think somehow we have to come to terms with, with the idea that the stuff that we put into the world or the stuff that we propose to put into the world, that the development or the growth of that is as much our responsibility as the inception of it. Yeah. Wow. That's, I think that's some fantastic uh, stuff for everybody to think about. So we're coming up on time here and this has been, I feel like I could talk about this stuff for like another five hours. Oh, me too. (laughs) It's like so interesting. So, uh, so where can people uh, follow your work or your thoughts or things that you just think people should look at and contemplate as they think about the role of the designers in the world? Uh, the best spots right now are the Dash Marshall website where we're posting our Civic Futures projects and perpetually behind, as I think every design studio is in that sense. Yes. And then Medium, where we're nowhere near as prolific as you guys. 
but try to do our best to, to document our work along the way. And I have a few pieces related to this that I, I need to actually post, but you know, we are posting somewhat regularly there. And those two sources will have various links to Helsinki Design Lab and some of the other things we talked about, if you dig around <laughs> enough. I know that's that's always every one of our every day. It's like, oh, this is the post we need to write today. Oh, we need to put that out there. But oh, it's it's hard. Writing. Writing is the hardest work of design. That's cool. That's I disagree, but oh, we can talk that's about a, that's that. a whole <laughs> other topic. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much, Brian. This has been a, a fantastic discussion and I look forward to, you know, write more because I'm super excited to to read it and see what's going on because this I really think is the level of conversations that I wish more designers would move towards. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed the discussion and, and the questions. It's a, a great excuse to talk about this stuff in lieu of writing about it. <laughs> this is It's been my secret plan the whole time. Oh, yeah. Brian, it's always a pleasure. You too, Mike. Nice to hear from you guys. This season, we're asking the question, what is the job of a designer? What is the job of a designer? Send your responses to us on Twitter at VOD underscore R-O-C-K-S rocks. Or you can send us an email to VOD, V-O-D, at muledesign.com. 